Good morning, afternoon, and evening listeners. Welcome back to the Air Force Judge Advocate General School podcast. I'm Major Laura Quacco, and I'm your host for this podcast. Now, this is the second part of my conversation on Russia with Dr. Andy Aiken and Lieutenant Colonel Sandra O'Hearn. For those of you who listened last time, welcome back. Thanks for joining us again. For those of you who missed it, You don't have to go back and listen to the first episode, but I highly recommend you do because it provides some good historical context and background for this episode. Now, Dr. Andy Aiken is a National Security Studies professor at Air Command and Staff College with a specific focus on Russian studies. And Lieutenant Colonel O'Hearn is a reserve judge advocate with a ton of operational law experience. And in her civilian capacity, she works for the Institute for Security Governance. In the last episode, Dr. Aiken and Lieutenant Colonel O'Hearn provided some phenomenal background on Russia history and some of the historical context between Russia and Ukraine leading up to the Russia-Ukraine conflict. In this episode, we jump right into the second part of the conversation where we first discuss operational law and then move towards some application looking at real-life examples between Russia and Ukraine. But before I hit play on the remainder of the conversation, you know, I'm going to have the typical disclaimer at the end of the episode, but because I'm a lawyer and everything, I just want to foot stomp like we did at the beginning of the last episode that anything discussed in this podcast is purely an academic conversation. It's all open source information. Any views or opinions are not those of the Department of Defense, the Air Force, its agencies or components, or even the organizations that our guests work for. So now, without any further ado, I'm going to turn it over to the rest of that conversation. Enjoy. So now we've got a better understanding of the historical background and context, but before we get into the nitty gritty of our conversation, let's talk about some of the operational law, you know, principles and concepts that might be kind of important as background knowledge for our conversation today. And something that I think we're going to kind of talk about is something called hybrid warfare. And uh, Lieutenant Colonel Hearn, would you mind giving some background on hybrid warfare? Is it like traditional, irregular warfare? Um, What's that all about? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I'm kind of sorry to leave the the historical because there's a conversation because there's so much more that that we could cover. But um, moving on to to hybrid warfare. Yes, uh, I think this is an important area of discussion, uh, primarily because it's Russia and and Russia and China both um, are actually very adept and effective at using different um, tools of hybrid warfare. And uh, a lot of uh, when you read about uh, the concept of hybrid warfare, a lot of times it is associated with uh, Russia and some of Russian activities. But I just want to clarify that the notion or the the concept of hybrid warfare is not uniquely Russian, nor is it a Russian term. Um, it it really is something that's that's used globally in a lot of different contexts, and it's it can be challenging to define as well. I mean, when you talk to different practitioners or different experts in the field, uh, they'll define it in different ways or even use it in different term, uh, different terms for it. You'll see gray zone activity or gray zone conflict or um, irregular warfare. And the definitions do matter. I, I know at least in my work, when I'm uh, working with different allies and partners, how they define this concept matters and what words they use matter because from a legal perspective, that will define what they're allowed to do, what tools they're allowed to use and how they might be able to respond. Um, 
So really in short, it's, it, it can, I think the best way to describe it is really a blending of conventional military uh, force and tactics with irregular tactics and really can run the gamut of cyber, electronic, information, economic, um, really any number of um, areas that can be brought into what would be used in hybrid warfare. Um, another kind of key factor is it's nonlinear. Uh, so unlike conventional warfare, where you sort of have a start, you have a finish, and you kind of see the sequence of events to reach a military objective, um, it's very nonlinear where you have multiple actors, both government, non-government, um, some not even belonging to the, the particular country who's the actor. Um, it will have um, uh, difficulties with trying to attribute who is committing which actions, uh, which makes it very difficult to target who the adversary actually is. Um, and it really uh, mixes both from a legal perspective, both domestic and international law, uh, human rights law and LOAC or law of war elements. And it, furthermore, it's not even limited to a single domain. So it's we're in conventional uh, war when we're doing our sort of basic operational law learning as JAGs, we learn about the different domains of um, air, space, cyberspace, land, maritime. Uh, this really is a blend of all domains and all instruments of power, and and really occurring simultaneously in some cases, or in or uh, you know all at once. So why is that important to us as, as legal practitioners? I think it's a fascinating concept and it really requires us to kind of have a different legal understanding um, and even a psychological shift of what warfare is compared to um, uh, previous decades. And for our non-military listeners, so, you know, they might be thinking of, World War One or two or fighting in the trenches. What kind of real life examples can you give about hybrid warfare? Well, I mean, there's any number of examples. Most commonly what we're seeing recently is this use of, of disinformation um, it, to affect or to manipulate um, legal frameworks. Uh, it can be activities that go uh just up until the point of actual um, conflict or, or an actual act of aggression. So it can be, uh, you know, a cyber attack uh, on a um, hospital and it, it can be difficult to attribute who who conducted that cyber attack. Uh, where was where was the actor? Is it a state actor or a non state actor? Um, so that's maybe a very simplistic form of uh, or example of what might be considered hybrid warfare. Yes. Thank you for, for explaining, ma'am. So I think for us on the legal side, um, it can be very challenging because like that example I just gave, it's not combined to, confined to state borders and it's not confined to a military action like you would have seen, like you mentioned in the trenches of World War One or World War II. 
Um, what we see is these blurred lines between military and civilian realms and uh, not bound by state borders. So our legal frameworks traditionally, when we're thinking of the Lieber Code, then moving on to the Geneva Conventions or um, the Hague Conventions or the other various uh, treaties and legal frameworks and customary international law that we have that govern these areas, those were conceptualized um, in the context of, of traditional or conventional warfare. So trying to do that, like I said, that sort of psychological uh, shift and sort of having a new legal understanding of warfare is, is a challenge. And even more challenging is, is how do you counter that? What strategies can you use to counter that to address these threats? There's no sort of one size fits all, you know, military campaign or operation uh, to to counter you know incoming missiles or or something like that it it really expands um, the the options of what we need to look at to be able to effectively counter uh, some of these threats. And so now I'd like to shift that um, into a conversation about lawfare for those of us you know attorneys on the line or people who are interested. Could you explain a little bit about lawfare now? Yeah, sure. So um, lawfare is not a new term. And I think a lot of our listeners probably have some sense or, or some understanding of what lawfare is, um, you know, for lack of a better word. It's essentially the use of law um, to effectively achieve a um, military objective. It usually is used in conjunction with other methods or means or instruments of power. You know, I like to think of law as an instrument of power, although maybe conventionally it's not. Um, and it's also not intrinsically evil. I think a lot of times it's used as like, oh, lawfare, they're doing something um, bad to uh, to, to get, uh, to whatever it is they're trying to achieve. Um, but really there's a proper alternatives and proper use of the law to gain, um, objectives as an alternative to using conventional methods or conventional, uh, weaponry. And, uh, one example that, that comes to mind is for instance, during, um, uh, our, our time in Afghanistan, uh, the U.S. put restriction on satellite imagery contracts um, to be able to effectively achieve the, the military objectives. Now, there was nothing nefarious or particularly manipulative about that, but it was a use of the law to be able to achieve that objective. Um, so lawfare can be used in a proper way, just like an attorney would in, in the court. We intentionally have opposing counsels that can um, have different interpretations of the law, and that's perfectly fine. Um, I think where this gets interesting or, or where we're really focused is more um, on malign legal operations where the law is used sort of inappropriately or in a in a. Um, incorrect manner to gain an objective. And malign legal operations is not my term. Um, I've also heard people use unlawfare, like unlawful. Um, but I think that's probably the better focus of, of what we're looking at. And in particularly what we're seeing um, as, as far as Russia being able to use effectively use this. So for legal advisors, this is really a critical element of hybrid warfare, hybridity. And um, it's oftentimes used in conjunction with disinformation and can truly be very effective. And it essentially 
revises the rule of law and undermines rule-based systems um, and allows the perpetrator to sort of escape legal obligations or, or dodge legal requirements um, effectively and be able to shape their own legitimacy or justify their own violations. So um, with that, I, I can certainly go into a few examples of how um, Russia has been able to effectively use this malign legal operations concept to their advantage. Yes, please do. So, um, like I said, I don't think this would be nearly as effective if it wasn't done in in coordination with disinformation. And I know Dr. Aiken touched a bit on uh, quite a bit on on disinformation and and control of the media. And um, Russia truly has been very effective. They're not the only actor that is effective at this, but they they certainly have. So. The way I see it, there's a number of different areas or categories of malign legal operations that they're able to um, to use in their favor. Uh, one is is the very blatant, just simply containing their adversary. Uh, during the time of the USSR, they effectively did this in Afghanistan, and then more recently. Uh, Russia has been effective in doing this in Ukraine. And then uh, also in Georgia, I, I want to take a step back and, and highlight that um, this, uh, the annexation of Crimea or even the occupation in the eastern Donbass region of Ukraine is not the, those, those are not the only, the, the only instances where Russia has gone in and contained certain geographic areas within the region. I think a lot of folks maybe not, are not aware, um, but for instance, they uh, annexed uh, regions in Georgia, uh, specifically Abkhazia and South Ossetia, uh, and then uh, the Nagorno-Karabakh region of Azerbaijan, and then the Transnistia region of Moldova. And this is in addition to what we saw in Ukraine. So uh, more has gone on than I, I think maybe uh, a lot of folks realize. Um, another area that I think Russia is very effective at using malign legal operations is to, like I mentioned before, shaping legitimacy. So, um, and th this is truly effective because I think when you call into question the legitimacy of an adversary's legal um, uh, actions, whether it's true or not, it can really shape the perception of the global community of that actor. Um, so even just by calling into question the legality of, of what a country is doing uh, can, can really be effective. Uh, so specifically a way that um, Russia has done this in the past is um, they make claims. So they'll file Interpol red notices. These are essentially a re international arrest warrants uh, that are carried out by Interpol. And they'll use this tactic to target dissidents. Um, they'll also use it as a basis for extradition to get um, folks back over to Russia where they can have legal control over them. Um, another uh, area is uh, lawsuits, both defamation lawsuits uh, against journalists, critics, dissidents, researchers, you know, basically any uh, person out there that they feel is a threat uh, to, to, the, to the Kremlin. Um, and, and also 
human rights claims, but uh, violations of human rights. So claims have been filed against um, Ukraine for many years as a form of antagonizing or sort of destabilizing. And the fact that it may or may not be true is kind of irrelevant in this case. These are just very effective tactics that sort of unsettle um, the target uh, of who they're targeting. Um, Accusations are, are another. And again, even sort of that perception of impropriety that comes from an accusation can have some devastating effects on the uh, sort of standing of, of, the, of the country that's being targeted. So when their human rights are being called into question, that obviously uh, raises uh, the scrutiny of the international community. So Russia knows this and they know that's effective. So for instance, um, uh, in 2014, in the annexation of Crimea, one of their uh, claims was that they were uh, violate, uh, violating human rights and the Universal Declaration on Human Rights uh, and violating the rights of the ethnic Russian population there. Uh, whether that was true or not, that was irrelevant. It was the fact that they could use that as a claim. Um, one of the more prominent examples of, of successfully using accusations, at least in their mind, is the Kerch Strait incident, where they claimed that uh, you, the Ukrainian Navy had violated the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, um, as well as a bilateral uh, treaty designating the Sea of Azov uh, and the Kerch Strait as shared territorial waters. And the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, or UNCLOS for short, guarantees access through that strait. Well, when the after the annexation of Crimea, uh, Russia claimed that even though no one else recognized, for the most part, the annexation of Crimea, Russia claimed that this is now Russian territorial water uh, in that strait. And um, as a result, they said Ukraine needs to ask permission and be granted permission to uh, go through that strait with Ukrainian naval vessels and merchant vessels as well. Um, well, Ukraine doesn't recognize Crimea as Russian, uh, as, as along with the rest of the international community for the most part. Uh, so Russians claim was that they repeatedly ordered uh, Ukrainian naval vessels to leave, uh, and this was in 2018, uh, to leave the area uh, because it was Russian territorial waters. And when Ukraine did not, uh, the, uh, the three vessels were attacked the, uh, by, by Russian forces, Russian Coast Guard, as well as uh, planes and helicopters. And they took the um, soldiers as prisoners and confiscated the, the boats. So um, there's a, a lot more to what happened in that incident, but it's interesting because they did use a legal framework to justify why they did what they did. Um, and right, then, that's really interesting I mean, because as a, us, as lawyers, you know, we can a, agree to disagree. We can look at a rule, a law and have different interpretations. So now throw in another country to the mix and their lawyers and their interpretations. It, it, it is really interesting. And I, I, I've only been able to talk to Ukrainian lawyers on this front and get their perspective. Um, of course, it aligns with how we would generally in the international community read that legal framework. Uh, but, but it's interesting when a country can just uh, flat out sort of make a claim that, well, these are now our territorial waters. So we call the shots here. Um, 
And even though no one else might see it that way, uh, they stand by that legal interpretation. Uh, so it's it's kind of interesting. And I mean, there's there's really a lot of examples I can use. I'll, I'll just highlight uh, maybe a couple more um, and, and then maybe open it back up to, to more discussion. But uh, there's also some um, an effective way of uh, that they use of probing legal gaps. So where there maybe isn't clear black and white legal um, uh, red lines, they'll kind of probe at that and see how far they can uh, they can get. And really, when you think of it, um, how have they been able to do everything they've done so far? Really, because they've been able to take each step without a lot of repercussion from uh, the international community or the West. So it, in some ways, some would argue um, that this just encourages uh, continued acts of aggression on the part of Russia. But one one interesting one, and this relates to the military and, and, and military lawyers, is uh, so we have a really well-known exercise on, on our side called Sea Breeze, and that occurs in the Black Sea. And uh, we generally uh, close off about eight square kilometers. Of, it's an exercise. It's a large exercise. Uh, and it goes for about um, 10 to 12 days. And uh, so that's how we conduct this exercise. Now, um, in response, so a lot of times when we have an exercise, Russia will respond with their exercise. So then Russia responded with their exercise, noting that they have a right to conduct their military exercises, which they do. But what they did in the Black Sea, instead of the eight square kilometers or by comparison, they closed off um, almost 117,000 square kilometers, blocking about 25 percent of international routes for the bordering countries of the Black Sea of Romania, Ukraine, Georgia, and Bulgaria. So um, sure, you're allowed to do uh, military exercises, but to what extent? That was sort of this probing um, that happened. Another sim very similar example is, is the well-known Zapad exercise that they do uh, with Belarus. And the um, conventional force in Europe treaty, as well as the Office of Security and Cooperation, Europe um, have rules uh, that require countries to report the troop numbers, um, especially if it's over a certain threshold. So for any kind of snap drills that involve over 13,000 troops, they have to be reported by law uh, so that these can be monitoring, monitored. Um, so in the case of, of Russia and, and Belarus and the Zapad exercise, they argued that, OK, well, the 13,000 is that limit for reporting. Well, we're only sending in 12,700 troops, so we're free. We don't have to report. But observers and reports stated that it was more like 140 to 240,000 troops that were going in um, and many of them were left there in Belarus for kind of obvious reasons. Uh, so, so that's sort of another example of where they've kind of pushed the issue and really didn't get a lot of response. So we're able, I guess, in effect, to get away with it. Um, I can certainly go into a couple of other um, examples, but I don't want to take up too much time. Yeah. So what I was going to going to bring up as well, you kind of mentioned this in a couple of places. One of the 
inherent strengths of particularly democratic societies and states is that the institutions are considered legitimate because they have rules and norms and expectations for how those institutions behave, and they are uh, guaranteed or enforced, again, by by standards. Uh, Voting, the legal system, all all of these institutions, again, have a lot of legitimacy. And what the Russians are so effective at through these lawfare and, and even hybrid campaigns is questioning the legitimacy of others' institutions while promoting the legitimacy of their own, even though it's a complete facade. Um, and, and that that I think is also one of just the biggest capabilities that Russia has been able to put out and why they're so dangerous at this. You know, another one of those perfect examples is uh, the sham uh, referendums on joining the Russian Federation throughout the Donbass and in, in those republics, you know, where where the Russian Federation pointed to the outcome and said, look, these, these people had the free choice. They voted to become part of Russia. We have to respect that. You know, the international community has to respect this. Uh, when, of course, you know, there was myriad uh, reports of how coercive and forced and, and falsified you know, the, those voting institute, those regimes were, were were done. So you begin to amplify that on, you know, just just all kinds of fronts and domains. You know, you even mentioned the, the lawsuit of publication. There's a phenomenal book on Putin and, and sort of the the origins of Putinism and the corruption that went along with it. Uh by Karen Dewisha, it's called a kleptocracy. Uh, and it was initially supposed to be published in the UK. Um, but because uh, the the libel laws in the United Kingdom are different than, than other places, uh, Russia actually filed suit on, under libel uh, to keep the book from being published. So ultimately, it had to be published in the United States with a different publisher. Um, but that, again, another example of um, Russia working through these institutions to mask or hide um, their intent, their capabilities, their interests, or, or even bad information about them from getting out there. No, I, I think you, you you hit it spot on. I mean, they really are very good at playing both sides of the same coin um, and blatantly. So to to the point where outsiders might look, go, who's really going to believe that? And, and how can they do that with a straight face? But it certainly happens. And um, there's many, many more examples. And by the way, that that uh, book is uh, um, kleptocracy is, is an excellent book and does do a a great job of explaining some of this background, how effective this is. But um, no, that's a perfect example of how they make these claims to sort of um, harass or stop actions or to control the actions of others when they don't like what's being said or done. Um, So it's, it's, uh, and again, I think it's particularly relevant to um, legal practitioners and uh, really brings to my mind the importance of, you know, legal resiliency in, in trying to develop counter strategies or address or preempt some of this, because this is this sense of legal resiliency, I don't think was at the at the top of uh, the minds of a lot of legal practitioners, particularly in the region, but even for us here in the U.S. Um, so I, I, I think. Um, that's a fascinating concept that, that needs to um, be addressed. And I, I have my ideas on different uh, ways that, that perhaps we can do that. 
But um, and I think Ukraine honestly has done a really good job on the legal resiliency front um, from, you know, really trying to and, and effectively, I think, take control of the narrative that's being put out there, being proactive. Uh, I mean, you see several daily um updates from President Zelensky and uh, the Ukrainian government to address um, issues as they come up instead of hiding from them, which I think was a tactic by a lot of the international community previously, um, and, and really educating and recognizing um, this disinformation and this, this legal malign operations as they're happening and being very, also being very conspicuous about compliance with international law or, uh, you know, international humanitarian law or law of armed conflict or law of war principles. Um, and from that perspective, I, I think the, uh, Ukrainians have really done, um, a, a great job. It's really fascinating to hear more about, you know, malign legal operations and, and those specific examples. So thanks both of you for, for that discussion. Now, I want to go back, you know, when you're talking about hybrid warfare, you mentioned law of war or LOAC, you know, law of armed conflict, which now we, we mostly say law of war. But I want to talk about law of war and, and international humanitarian law. So for our non-military folks and, and non-judge advocates, they might hear about various actions or various attacks and wonder, is that OK? Is that legal? Like, how do we decide that type of act is permissible? So could you give a little bit of an overview of what legal advisors and commanders in those types of environments consider to make those kinds of determinations? Yeah, of course. And I, I think that uh, it's a good segue from uh, the comments I gave on, uh, you know, legal resiliency and counter strategies, because I think a good solid understanding of um, the law of war or what you know more commonly in the international community would be called um, international humanitarian law. And, or IHL, and um, an understanding of what those sort of primary principles are. Uh, and, and I can even give some examples really on both sides of where this has really come into play in the Ukraine context. But just very briefly, for those who may not know, uh, when we're looking at uh, law of war or IHL principles, you know, the, it's sort of agreed upon that the primary principles you'd be looking at are military necessity. In other words, is this, is it, is military, um, action required in this particular situation, um, avoidance of unnecessary suffering. So depending on the methods and means of warfare that you're using, are you ensuring that you're limiting the amount of suffering that has to be inflicted to achieve this military objective? Um, the, prince, the third principle would be distinction, uh, ensuring that you're distinguishing between military targets and um, civilian targets. And then finally, proportionality. Are you using just enough military power uh, to achieve that objective without sort of going overboard? Um, of course, there's a lot of subcategories and um, nuances to each one of those four primary principles. But just for the sake of um, simplifying uh, the concept, the, those are the, the main principles that uh, military forces need to keep in mind. Um, so in, in the case of um, what we're seeing currently in, and reported in the news and discussed quite frequently on a lot of um, in a lot of media outlets is this sort of constant 
um, violation of IHL or law of war principles uh, by Russia during this invasion. And certainly Russia has made accusations against Ukrainians for doing the same. So it's not just a one sided or a one way um, street for this. But uh, there's been um, verified multiple, multiple attacks on civilian targets in violation of uh, these principles and um, arguably intentional attacks on military targets uh, from apartment buildings, uh, civilian roadways, um, hospitals, playgrounds, you name it. Uh, one of the more egregious ones that happened early on uh, in March of last year was the Mariupol theater attack where uh, hundreds of civilians were taking shelter in a theater. Uh, this includes families, children, and uh, they had even gone so far as to, in big, big letters, write the word Deti, Russian for children, out in front of the theater to um, alert anyone that would be looking to target this, that, that there are children in here. This is not a, a target. And I'll say under international law, they're not required to do that. It is incumbent on uh, the uh, military operation that is targeting to determine the civilian target or not, regardless of whether they've put that word out there or not. But this just goes to show they went kind of above and beyond to identify what the purpose of was this for this building. So um, uh, Russia used precision guide munitions and struck this uh, theater, uh, essentially demolishing it. There's there's out there in, in the public. You can see pictures of before and after in, in several news accounts, uh, essentially trapping civilians that were seeking shelter in the basement. Um, and this this essentially was consistent with the Russia's pattern of targeting non-military um, objects. And Russia is a signatory to the Geneva Convention, uh, although Putin has tried to withdraw, but every country is a signatory at this point. Uh, and it shows, I, I, this is a horrible example, but it does, it's, it's good at showing how the different elements or, or principles of the uh, law of war were violated. For instance, distinction, it was clearly a civilian um, object. It was not a military object proportionality, was it necessary? What, what, depending on what their military objective was, was there a need to completely decimate the entire theater? Um, and then no precaution to uh, minimize harm to civilians, that unnecessary suffering um, principle was clearly violated. So th that was uh, one example of um, very egregious example of where Russia completely sort of did not follow or even attempt to follow any of those um, recognized uh, principles. Are they required to address that and give some kind of justification or why they think it was lawful? Um, I mean, ultimately, especially, and, and this gets into another area of the investigations and case preparation for war crimes, um, and, and this is just one of hundreds and hundreds of examples. So, I mean, technically, if the system works the way we've set it up and it's supposed to work, they would be uh, have to respond uh, to war crimes allegations. Um, in this particular case, 
uh, there, the only response that I've seen reported in this and many other cases is that they're being used for military purposes, but really with nothing that I've seen at least to back that up. Um, and certainly in this case, it was pretty evident by all the footage that there was nothing to back that up in this particular case. But that's been a pretty constant uh, um, response on the Russian side to these allegations so far. Um, another interesting example of a violation of IHL principles that wasn't reported on as much um, is this notion that um, so it, it Russian taking um, in in the Black Sea taking warships and painting over the hull numbers. There's always numbers on the hull for warships, and they're always painted gray, and removing the flag on the vessel. So one of the requirements under international law uh, to include the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea that I'd mentioned earlier, as well as the Hague Convention is, again, that principle of distinction, making sure that you know this is a military target. Well, now, if the Russians have painted over the hull numbers and removed the flags, uh, they have now um, sort of circumvented that the, these laws and uh, are sort of able to kind of hide behind this, this, you know, hiding themselves as a, as a, a warship, um, even though it's pretty obvious what they were. So, um, you know, one might question, well, why would they do this to what, to what end? Well, um, one of the requirement legal requirements is Ukrainians have to identify it as a legal target, as a military object uh, before they can fire on it. Well, if there's nothing identifying it, this now puts them in the conundrum of not being able to fire on it. Um, and then they can all, the Russians can also flip that around and say, well, uh, the Ukrainians attacked civilian vessels, even though from photographs, it's pretty clear these are not civilian vessels. Um, so this is another uh, way that Russia can sort of deny its obligations under international law. There's also a couple of examples on, on the Ukrainian side of where they are really trying to proactively and conspicuously uh, comply with international law uh, that I can certainly go into. Sure. So um, one area that, that really raised a lot of questions, particularly at the start of the invasion, but, but continuing on is the use of, of volunteers and volunteer forces in the defense of Ukraine. And these include the territorial defense forces, as well as there's been a lot of international response where they have an international legion attached to their territorial defense forces where uh, foreign fighters can come in. Uh, there's been allegations from Russia that these are mercenaries. That's been debunked uh, for a number of reasons of what's required for them to qualify as mercenaries. Um, and they also have to comport with um, requirements under international law if they're going to serve in this capacity, essentially take, take part in any kind of hostilities. Um, so they have to be clearly distinguished. I, you'll see them, they'll either have a patch or an armband. Uh, they have to openly carry arms um, and they have to conduct any sort of military operations, not, not necessarily support, although it depends how close those are to, to actual acts of um, of conflict, but they have to conduct those uh, operations in accordance with the laws and the customs of war. Um, and in the case of Ukraine and these territorial defense forces and the International Legion, um, they've really been very proactive in ensuring that they are complying um, 
I'm sure there's been some instances here and there, but of, of, uh, you know, whether or not they, they are complying, but overall, uh, when you look at reports and, and read, um, uh, what's coming out that, that they are actually proactively complying. And I think this, um, this sort of ties again to that legal resilience of them really going above and beyond to make sure that the world sees that they are complying uh, with their legal requirements and obligations. And the same goes for, um, there were early on some allegations on the side of Russia of how they were treating with, um, how they're treating captured combatants or POWs. And again, they've, um, Ukraine has really made an effort to go above and beyond to show how those, um, individuals are being treated. I mean, there's, there's more there, uh, that, that, um, you know, I don't touch on, but, uh, at least from what we're seeing in um, most uh, most reports, they're really being proactive about that. And the only thing I could add to that is looking historically at the Russian way of war, uh, going back, I mean, obviously to, to Chechnya in the 90s, but even before, um, laws of war and humanitarian concerns have always been secondary, if not you know, just ignored aspects of, of Russian operations. Um, that it's just, you know, it is what it is. It is a very demonstrable concept. The other thing that is concerning in this context is that Russia clearly has no qualms with choosing military strategies of punishment for civilians uh, and attrition. Um, where they just, you know, they will indiscriminately um, destroy infrastructure, whether it's civilian or has any military application whatsoever, uh, and then also terrorize the civilian populations uh, in an effort to bring about those those political objectives. And Americans in particular, you know, given our sort of very clean and, and surgical approach almost towards military operations, find this abhorrent. Uh, but it's very, very common for for the Russians to to, to make use of it. Yeah, that's a great point, Dr. Aiken. I, I mean, we see allegation after allegation um, and really with no inclination to adjust how Russia is conducting their operations. So um, it's the aftermath is really going to be very interesting as um, investigations into a lot of these alleged war crimes occur and and where that will uh, where that will end up and uh, what sort of accountability will uh, result so that that is definitely interesting. Another another piece on the POW um, issue that just occurred to me because I just read about and I think it's fascinating. This uh, there's this new project on the part of the Ukrainian government uh, called I Want to Live, and it's a project to allow Russian soldiers to surrender um, by the use of drones. So essentially there's information that's put out on how they can surrender with a drone, essentially leading them to where they need to surrender. And, you know, this sort of use of technology, uh, intersecting with legal obligations, because there's certain requirements that have to be met to, to surrender on the side of, um, the, country that's receiving the uh, member that's surrendering. And uh, it, it really is fascinating and, and interesting to see that Ukraine is really taking this sort of advanced approach of doing everything it can 
um, to do things the right way. And so I just wanted to, to mention that uh, that recent project that they had uh, started. Wow, that's really interesting to hear kind of the, the dichotomy and how Russia and Ukraine are acting in the same conflict. And I'm sure there's, you know, six more hours or probably more that we could talk on this very subject. Um, but I think we're going to wrap it up for today. But before I do that, I just want to turn it over to the two of you to give any kind of last words of wisdom or, or what you want our listeners to take home from today's conversation. Uh, what I think is is imperative for listeners to know is that uh, we are seeing <clears throat> a couple of pretty significant occurrences uh, in the last year. Uh, we're seeing uh, the the liberal international system championed by the United States since the Second World War uh, challenged. Uh, we're also seeing it positively respond in ways that we didn't anticipate a year ago. Uh, we're definitely seeing a return to the power and force of identity politics uh, and what that can lead to in terms of uh, military aggression and, and redistribution of territory. Uh, and I think we're also uh, you know, once again, uh, being reminded that we are are returning to this era of state versus state and and big power politics. Yeah, just to add on what Dr. Aiken eloquently said, um, I would point out for our legal practitioner listeners, um, don't underestimate your work and your value in in all of this. I, I think what is happening. Um, is important as a legal practitioner and important to take notice. And for for everyone, even non-legal practitioners, I think it's also important to, to take note of what is happening um, is this is really just not Ukraine at stake, but really the concept of a rules-based system um, and our international support for that, that rules-based system. Yes, ma'am. Very well put. All right. Well, Dr. Aiken and Lieutenant Colonel O'Hearn, thank you so, so much for joining me on the AFJAGS podcast. I know I could not have done this episode without the two of you, and I certainly learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners did as well. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you so much. It's my pleasure. All right. I hope you all enjoyed that conversation with Lieutenant Colonel O'Hearn and Dr. Aiken. I know I sure did. But if you've got any feedback, input whatsoever, please review, rate, subscribe. I'll take anything you've got about this episode, about other episodes. If you've got ideas for future episodes, please, please, please let me know. And with that, that is all I have for you folks today. Hopefully we will see you all next time. Until then, this podcast is in recess. Are you interested in joining the Air Force JAG Corps? You can learn more information at airforce.com slash JAG. That's J-A-G. You may also call us at 1-800-JAG-USAF. That's 1-800-524-8723. Or you may email us at airforcejagrecruiting at gmail.com. Nothing from this show should be construed as legal advice. Please consult an attorney for any legal issues. Nothing in this show is endorsed by the federal government, the Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of its guest and host.